But uh, I want to tell you a little story about this. This is a little uh, link to a daily devotional that I write. And I want to tell you the story behind it because I think it's really the story of what I want God to do with you in your life. So this was probably about, I don't know, maybe five years or so ago, I decided as a father that I was going to write a little Devo for my kids. You know, I know they're in front of these devices all the time, just like we are, and I was trying to figure out as a father how I could have a spiritual influence in their lives, right? So I told my wife, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create this Dad's Daily Devo group on our phone, and I'm going to text every day all three of my kids and, of course, now my son-in-law and my wife. So five people were on this chain. I called it Dad's Daily Devo. I had a little picture of the emoji of the Bible on there. I kind of made it look cool. And I just started sending them these, these texts every day. And it was just short scriptures with, with thoughts behind it. So I thought this, is, this was a great idea, okay? Until I got to about day 15, I had heard nothing, nothing. Got to day 20, still nothing. This is a group chat now. That even my wife is on, and I'm hearing nothing from any one of my family members. Day 25, I am frustrated, okay? And I'm frustrated because I didn't get a smiley face emoji, a thumbs up, a little woohoo, you know, nothing. From nobody, no kidding. So day 25, I said, after day 30, I'm done with this, it ain't working. Ever felt like that as a father, as a husband, as a man? Yeah, I felt exactly like that right there, that feeling, like a failure. So day 30 came, and I'm like, okay, I'm glad this is over with. And uh, I sent the last text. Day 31 comes, and I get a text in the group chat from my daughter who says, Dad, where's our daily Devo? <laughs> Which I had not written, of course. And I said, sarcastically, as sarcastically as you can say in a text, oh, I did not know you read them, you know. And then she said back to me, she said, Dad, we don't just read them, we share them with her friends. And come to find out, she had been taking my Devo and sharing them in groups of friends. Specifically, a few friends that she felt that needed them and were desperate for that message. Five seconds later, my son chimes in, he goes, yeah, Dad, where's our daily Devo? <laughs> And no kidding, here's what happened with that experience. That one of those daughters showed the text that I had sent my daughter to her dad. Her dad reached out to me and said, you need, you need to send this to other dads. Well, that turned into the Men's Daily Devo, which, by the way, five years later, 100,000 people read every single day. Isn't that crazy? Oh. Now... I tell you that for a reason. Uh, I think sometimes we don't realize the impact we're having in people's lives spiritually. And I was really taken back by this. But all this is is just a short Devo for me on video, audio, or in written format that you can use to grow in your faith daily. Right now I'm in the book of First Timothy, and I just do one book at a time, and it's always for dudes, by the way. Even though I send it to my kids, it's for dudes. It's written by a man to men, about men, and I just come at scripture, and it's just my journey through God's word. So if you're looking to grow in your faith and you need a free tool, free, it doesn't cost you anything, it's free, three to six minutes, maybe eight minutes, sometimes a day, and you will just kind of journey through the Bible and discover all the great things that I'm learning about God at the same time and be challenged with that. So there you go, here's a tool for you. All right, so 
we've been through some things with David, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, I actually changed my message this morning, okay? So I was going to do a couple of other things, but I'm not going to do that because I happened to read 1 Samuel chapter 18, which comes right after 17. By the way, aren't you glad you came today to understand that 18 comes after 17? But anyway, I was reading the story of David Goliath again last night, and then I came across the text that comes next, and it, and it moved me. It actually moved me pretty deeply. And so I'm going to read it for you, and then we're going to dive into it. Here's, here's what happens after, after David slays Goliath. He comes to Saul. They have a conversation, and then here's what happens next. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. I want to talk to you today about the need we have for brothers. I was convicted about this this morning as I was reading it, and I, I just think that you need to know that as you leave this place, you need brothers. And they're essential to your spiritual growth. You know, some people read this text and they kind of misinterpret it, and they see some, some weird kind of sexual fantasy between David and Jonathan. But that's because they misunderstand the soulful knitting of two spiritual, God-fearing men together. Because those of us who have experienced a soul knitting between one brother in Christ and another brother in Christ, there is something different about this. We know, we know that there is something about natural relationships, but brothers... The proverb says, are born for adversity, meaning they're born for moments of adversity to join together in arms through challenges of life. And you cannot go through this life without a spiritual brother. We prefer autonomy. And our preference for autonomy is a preference to do any selfish thing that we want. Therefore, we do life alone because we're selfish. But inside of a brotherhood is a soul knitting that you're only going to experience if you ever go there. I am so irritated with men's ministries in the church because often men's ministries in the church only have a certain theme around them, if you've noticed it, because I do travel the country and the world, and I do see a lot of men's ministries, and the predominant ministries in the church are, two men at least, are pain-based ministries. Financial recovery, divorce recovery, addiction recovery, pornography recovery, you name it, it's, uh, we got recovery for anything for men. But very rarely do you see the knitting of men together in a proactive state. 
meaning we're coming together because we know that we need each other. But I will tell you this, every man that has been in one of those ministries, nothing wrong with them, by the way, they're very good ministries, discover something inside of them that they wish they would have had before they ever got there because had they had it, they wouldn't be in that situation. And you know what it is? It's brotherhood. They learn a lot of great things there, but inside of addiction recovery and divorce recovery and financial recovery and whatever kind of recovery we have, we discover something that we didn't have before that we know that if we'd had it before, we would have never been in that state. And it's brotherhood. It's a covenant between two men. So I'm going to be extra strong right here. If you're going to walk out of this room, an autonomous man, and think you can do life alone, you are dead wrong. The greatest years of David's life were these 15 to 20 years right here before he ever became king. Did you know that? David defeated Goliath, did not become king immediately. You know what he did? He knit his soul to another brother named Jonathan. Jonathan, who was 10 years his senior, who was of a different lineage than he was. He was a man made to be the prince and the next king. David was a young farmer boy. These two men were different in some aspects, but the same. And they aspired, aspired to be committed and to make a covenant with one another, an unbreakable covenant, fellas, not a casual relationship, a covenant. And inside of that covenant, something spectacular happens if we will lean into it. David, 15 years old, makes a covenant with an older man. And inside of that relationship, God is going to work on these two men through some of the greatest challenges of their young lives. And you need a guy just like that. In fact, I've been laboring over this all morning. I've been praying that God would disturb you with a name. He probably already has, because I believe he's been working before we walked into this room. That he would disturb you with a name that he puts on your mind of someone either you need to be in relationship with, or they need to be in relationship with you. So, a little story of my life, a little testimony of how I'm here today. So, I grew up in Vallejo, California, Northeast Bay. Lived there until I was about 20 or so. My father was an actually pretty hardcore atheist, and my mom was an agnostic who had walked away from the church. So, we kind of had interesting conversations, not about God in our house, right? My mom and dad divorced when I was two, stayed in the same town. Mom got remarried again, divorced again by the time I was about 13 or 14 or so. At that point, she came to me, said she was going to marry again because she could see it was having an effect on me because it was. And after that moment, I watched her bring men in and out of the house all the time, which was not a better situation, by the way. Because of that, when I was about 15 years old, the same age as David was here, my grandfather came over to our house one day, and my grandfather was a believing man. And I want you to know he was not allowed to come into our house because he was a believer. Isn't that interesting? Never seen a believer in my house ever, but I remember this day I was about 15. He comes over. He asked to come in. My mom allows him to come in. They sat down at the kitchen table because I was kind of interested in the conversation. I snuck around the corner, and I listened in. And here's what I heard. I heard the conversation that my mom had with my grandfather about him begging her to let me come live over at his house. And no kidding, I listened to her kind of abdicate raising me, and I moved in with my grandfather. Now, my grandfather's house was way different from my mom's house. So my grandfather was a military veteran. Uh, he, uh, he, was, 
He was a bald guy with a tattoo on his right arm and said Walter Lee Baker, which was his name, spelled correctly. He got it in the Navy after drinking too much one night. Told me never to get that tattoo, so I don't have it on my body anywhere. Um, he was just an average guy. There was nothing special about him. Uh, uh, he played golf every day of his life except for Thursdays, which was Women's Day, which we heard about every Thursday, every reason on why he didn't golf on Thursdays. Um, he was well-loved in the neighborhood. He was a very generous man, but he deeply loved God. He was a very, very disciplined person, all right? So I moved into his house, and, and life was really different for me there. I even remember the first meal at his house. And I'd eaten in his house before, but all of a sudden, the structure just felt like it, it changed. So my grandfather lived in a little wartime house in Vallejo. I mean, it was a, literally a one-bedroom house. He made a bedroom for me in the garage, typical in California, right? Made, made me a bedroom in the garage. And, uh, and I moved in. And, uh, you know, he wasn't that wealthy. Uh, he, he was very uh, diligent in everything we did. But the simple practices that we engaged in were going to rewire who I was, but I wasn't prepared for it. Very first meal, we sat down at the little kitchen table. And he had a tiny little kitchen with a little round table with four chairs my grandfather had his spot, grandmother had her spot, and then one of the other two chairs were mine to choose from, right, permanently. Like, you choose it, you're done, you know, for life. <laughs> so anyway, I chose my chair, I sat down. Grandmother was, my grandmother was a short order cook, so she was always fast with the meals. She made breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, which was incredible, because I grew up on Swanson dinners and Totina's pizza rolls that I ate by myself most of the time, by the way. So anyway, uh, there's, there's, we're sitting down, and all of a sudden the meal's kind of coming out in pieces, and grandma's throwing stuff down on the table, and I reached out for something. I reached out for some food. You know what's happening here, okay? I reached out for some food, and my grandfather reached over, and he smacked me pretty hard. I mean, it hurt. I kind of wanted to cry a little bit, but he smacked my hand, right? He said, no, we're going to wait for your grandmother. I was like, okay, this is new. Like, I'm learning manners, right? I'm learning an order of things. And then I kind of waited for Grandma to throw all the stuff on the table, and I reached out again, and he's like, uh-uh, no, wait for your Grandma. She's going to sit down, and then we'll pray. I'm like, okay. So, you know, they, she sits down, and I sit down, everybody's, everything's in place finally, <laughs> and then he says, okay, we're going to pray. So he, I watch him. He closes his eyes, bows his head, as does my grandmother. He prays. He gets done. He says, amen. He looks up, and he says, next time, close your eyes and bow your head. I don't know how he knew that, but like I was, I was just kind of looking. I was like, okay, what's happening, you know? And, uh, and then we start eating, and, and I just want you to know, I always ate by myself. There was no one ever at the table, so I ate as fast as I could because that's how I knew how to eat. So I'm slamming all this stuff down, and I get done in like two minutes, you know? And uh, no kidding, uh, I'm about to get up from the table. I'm pushing back my chair, and my grandfather grabs me by the shirt sits me back down. He says, we wait till your grandmother is done and I'll dismiss you. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't know this was a military experience, but you know, anyway, I'm sitting here and sure enough, my grandmother ate so slow. <laughs> she literally, I'm not joking, ate one pea at a time. I <laughs> guess with a spoon, you know, and I'm like, this is crazy. But during that time, we had a conversation about our day, about life, about issues, about challenges, about what's going to happen tomorrow, the plans, all that kind of stuff. This was kind of interesting. I kind of liked it a little bit, you know, and I was kind of taking to it, but I realized this is the place where we talk about our day. 
And then after Grandma finished her last pee, I did ask for permission to leave the table, and they let me leave. Well, Grandfather's house was just like that with everything. He was super disciplined in reading his Bible. He was super disciplined in teaching me. He was super disciplined at the table, just about everything. And so it was very easy to get in line with this for me, and I enjoyed it because I came from no structure, right? No structure. First week after being in his house, first week, happened to be a Saturday at the end of the week, uh, my, my grandfather is leaving the house, and we had this old, he had this old white cutlass 88, all right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, it, it, he, was, he was leaving the house to go somewhere, and I didn't know where he was going, but my grandmother said, hey, son, you need to go out with your grandfather and go to the shop with him. And I didn't know what that meant, but I ran out of the house real quick and jumped in my grandfather's car, and we went, and he was quiet the entire way. I didn't even know where we were going. But we're going down to a body shop, okay? That's where we're going. Going to a body shop because my grandfather had taken his truck in to get worked on. So my grandfather bought off the showroom floor in 1958 a 58 Chevy Apache truck. And he was known for this truck. Everywhere he went, everybody knew this truck. I mean, he honked at people, waved at people. A bald guy coming down the street in this old Chevy truck. Took it everywhere. So anyway... Uh, when he first had it, it was brown, this brown Chevy color with kind of white fenders and everything. And then in the 70s, uh, even, you know, in, when I was really young, he had it painted gold metal flake because that was cool in the 70s, right? Had wire rims on it, lowered it a little bit. It was Vallejo, okay? So, you know, it was all kind of tricked out. And then when I moved into the house, it's now back in the shop. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at his old 58 Chevy. And we walk into the shop, and uh, it's entirely apart. The Chevy's entirely apart. I noticed that the uh, frame, the chassis, was sitting on the ground here, and nothing was on it. It had just been powder-coated. And then hanging from the ceiling was the, uh, on some contraption, I can't even describe it, but was the shell of my grandfather's truck. It had been completely stripped of paint, so it's bare. And my grandfather bolts in, and I'm kind of following alongside of him. And over on the far right corner of the body shop were three guys, all wearing pretty roughed up wife beaters, smoking heaters, right? And they're just looking at my grandfather's truck. They're talking about it. And he walks in and, and uh, they say, hey, Mr. Baker. And he walks over to engage him in the conversations. There's a little bit of small talk. And he says, well, what are you talking about? And he says, well, Mr. Baker, the guys say, did you know that there's not an ounce of Bondo anywhere on this truck? And he responds, yeah, I know that. He says, you better keep it that way. Real stern, you know, he's kind of joking with him, but he's real stern. And he says, because I plan on giving this truck to my son when he turns 16. And he points back to me. And I kind of go, huh? And then these three guys go, huh? <laughs> You're going to give this to him? <laughs> so anyway, what he was doing is he was restoring this truck for me. He had taken it in on the day that I moved into the house, took it down to the shop to get completely restored. And here's a picture of it right here. This is my grandfather's 1958 Chevy Apache truck. It was beautiful cherry red. I mean, the clear coats that they put on this thing were so perfect that you could actually see a clear reflection of your face in the side of it. Oak bed in the back, cherried out front end and back end, all new interior. They pretty much didn't touch that engine in it, but it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. We actually used to show it together. But I remember the day that he pulled it out of the shop and we brought it home, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get the coolest car ever when I turn 16. But he said to me when he got it home, he says, 
Now you're going to have to learn how to drive Liz. That was her name, Elizabeth, Liz. It was the only affair that my grandfather ever had. <laughs> and I got to tell you, every single moment that we sat in that truck together, side by side, he gave me a lesson on how to drive this truck. Every single time. He taught me how to treat Liz, how to love Liz, how to drive her, how to stop her. I mean, took me around the whole thing and showed me the whole, every little nook and cranny. Well, I'm 15 and a half now, so a few months later, I'm 15 and a half, I go down and I get my pink slip so I can drive with another adult in the car. We get home, and I say, Grandfather, can we take Liz out for a drive? And he's like, sure, let's go. So I have never driven this truck before. This is the first time, 15 and a half. I hop in, and I start this thing, and I want you to know there's nothing automatic on this truck. Not one automatic feature. You know, it's got a three-on-the-tree non-synchro transmission, which just meant you had to come to a stop before you put it into gear, otherwise your grandfather would backhand you. And that only happened one time, I promise you, because it hurt. Don't grind my gears, right? Uh, big bus-like steering wheel, you know, that often you had to turn like this at a stop, you know. Uh, big, big leather seats that, by the way, when you run around the corner too fast on, you just kind of, you know, you kind of did this thing on a little bit. No seat belts, by the way, you know, just free driving here. Uh, starter on the floor. Had a little starter on the floor. I actually kind of had to get out of my non-adjustable seat to reach that thing. And wing windows that we called our air conditioner, right? right? Which those are the greatest feature ever. I'll never forget when my, my kids had gotten an experience with this truck. Uh, my uh, son hops into the passenger seat for the first time, looks over at the handle on the door, and asked me, Dad, what's that thing right there? I said, that is called a window crank. <laughs> And he said, what do you do with it? I said, son, you crank the window down with it. And literally he did this. I'll never forget it. He, he grabbed it, and he's rolling it down like I showed him, and he watches the window come down, and he looks back at me and says, Dad, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Why, why would anybody ever use one of those? So anyway, this is the truck I'm learning to drive on. You know, it's entirely manual. It's a big work farm truck, right? And so we hop in it, and I've taken the lesson. So we, you know, hustle down the street. And I get five blocks down the street, and because I grew up in the Bay Area, you know, it's either going up or down or 90, right? I came to a stop on a hill. It was a pretty good incline. And I was scared to death. I was like, okay, here's my test. And I pull up to the stop sign, and sure enough, as soon as I stop, a woman pulls up right behind me. Right behind me. I mean, she's so close, I can't actually see her face in the rear view mirror. But I do everything that my grandfather's taught me to do, right? So I, I got my foot down on the brake. I got my foot down on the clutch. I, I, uh, I then lift up and down on uh, the shifter to drop it into first gear, take my hand from the shifter, move it to the steering wheel. Then I take my left hand, and I reach down for the emergency brake. The little trick he taught me, pull up on the emergency brake, holding in on the trigger so it doesn't lock. Holding in on it, I take my foot from the brake, and I move it to the gas. And it kind of looked more like this, you know. And I really couldn't see over the steering wheel all that great. And uh, I want to tell you, it was super awkward. And the reason why it was super awkward is because you got to be able to squat like 225 to get that clutch to go down. Because it's like, it's like this big, like, long arm on it. It doesn't have this smooth cushion into first gear. And no kidding, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to work this thing, and I'm working the gas, 
and I get kind of nervous. And my grandfather notices that I'm nervous because he hasn't noticed yet that there's a woman behind me, right? So I'm kind of working the gas, and I'm kind of getting close to where I can feel the spot. And my grandfather does this thing. This is, I literally saw him out of the corner of my eye. He, he fixes his glasses like this, which he's almost totally blind, right? So he's like 75 years old. So he's almost totally blind. He's got his bifocals on. He fixes his glasses. He looks in the side view mirror like this, leans over, and then I watch him. He crosses his arms like this, gets kind of stern, and then turns to me and says, son, you better not scratch my truck. <laughs> and I knew he was dead serious, by the way. I mean, his car just came out of the shop, right? So no kidding, I, I just did what I thought was the right thing to do. And so I start taking the RPMs up on this thing. And I don't know what it was at, but I definitely know it was above 3,000 RPMs, maybe 4,000. It could have been five. It could have been five, because here's what that engine sounded like. It sounded like, you could just hear this inline six ticking. The car is starting to rock a little bit, you know? And I'm working on this gas, because I'm just going to pop this clutch out and let it go, because I want to go forward, not backwards, because I do not want to get backhanded again in this truck, right? So no kidding, I'm stepping on the gas, and, and my grandfather's he's watching me do this, and I, I don't know exactly what he did physically, but he just yelled, stop, stop. He says, take your foot off the gas right now. He says, put that clutch down. Put it, put it back in neutral for a second. Rest, rest, rest yourself. And I, I, did, I just did exactly what he told me to do. I just very responsibly did everything. And then a couple of seconds later, he said, did I make you nervous? <laughs> I said, yeah, just a little bit. He said, well, can I give you some advice? And I'm like, sure, I'll take it. So this woman's still sitting behind us. And remember, like, you know, this conversation's going on, right? This woman's sitting behind us. And then he turns to me and he says, can I tell you what I used to do when I was a kid and I was in the same situation? He's 75. I'm 15 and a half. So my mind goes prehistoric, right? <laughs> like, I, I'm like, what were you driving when you were my age in this situation? And I literally thought horse and buggy. That's literally where I went. Because I'm like, this guy's old, man. He can hardly see. You know, he bought this off the showroom floor. I'm like, okay. So he says to me next, no joke, this is exactly what he said to me. He says, back when I was learning to drive on my Model A, he said, we just used to roll backwards gently, slowly, and rest the bumper of our car on the car behind us. I'm like, dude, you're crazy, because all I can see is this chrome bumper on the back that's just been dipped. I'm like, there's no way. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I just go back to the position, and as soon as I get back to the position, this woman rolls back a little bit because she's impatient now. It's been a couple of minutes, right? And as soon as she rolls back, I just let off the clutch, and it bounces around the corner. And I want to tell you, that was the greatest feeling I've ever experienced in my entire life. Because it's the first time I'd ever experienced a man by my side in the challenges of life who wanted me to win. It's that moment and that feeling right there that continued to urge me on in my relationship with my grandfather. Well, my grandfather had a master plan with his truck, and it was this. He wanted, me to, he wanted to teach me how to drive this thing perfectly. 
He wanted to show me all the ins and outs and disciple me, mentor me, show me the way around and how to treat Liz. So no kidding, every Saturday he taught me for six months how to do one thing, just one thing, how to parallel park. Three hours every Saturday for six months. Two months in flat areas, two months on inclines, two months on declines. Literally every Saturday, here's what happened. He said, let's hop in the truck, let's go for a drive. And we drove all over the Bay Area. That was it, all over the Bay Area. And he would basically say, park here, park here, park here, park here, park here. And I want you to know, it was not easy parking that truck. But at the end of six months, guess what I became? A perfect parallel parker. Absolutely perfect every single time, which is kind of a miracle when you think about this truck does not have a button on it you push that just kind of parks itself. You got to manhandle this thing, and it's difficult to drive, right? Well, no kidding, shortly after my grandfather taught me many of these things, about a few years later, he died of cancer. I was about 20. And uh, my wife never knew my grandfather, because he died long before she was ever able to meet him. But my wife has met my grandfather hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Because we'll take any car out to eat, like on a Friday, Saturday night, downtown Minneapolis, St. Paul, and I'll try to find a parking spot on the street. My wife has said to me hundreds and hundreds of times, you cannot get this car into that spot there. <laughs> to which I respond, woman. <laughs> I don't actually say that far. It just kind of makes me feel good, right? <laughs> I, I just turned to her and I say, challenge accepted. And she has never not seen me parallel park perfectly the first time an inch from the curb in any car ever. And you know what that is? That's discipleship and mentoring is what it is. It's someone taking a little bit of skill that they have and passing it on to somebody else. That's all it is taking a little bit of an ordinary skill and giving it to somebody else, which is the calling that we have in this life is men. That's what's been passed down to us. It's our first responsibility as men, as fathers, as husbands, as leaders, is to pass on what God has given to us. That's what my grandfather did with me. But get this, it isn't the only thing that, God, that uh, my grandfather taught me in that truck. My grandfather taught me about manners and about manhood and about life and about challenges and about God in that truck. Because guess what? Every Saturday on those three hours, we weren't driving a lot. We were parked. He would make me turn off the car and he would right there in those moments have conversations with me. Some of them lasted 30 seconds. Some of them lasted an hour. But he knew he had me trapped in a proposition where he was going to disciple me. It was actually genius when you think about it, right? One of those conversations went just like this. Here's one conversation, and it's this one conversation that turned my world right side up. It went just like this. My grandfather said, I know that your dad and your mom say God is not real. And their evidence is that Christians are hypocrites and the church is full of broken people. And then he turned to me and he says, I want you to know that they're right. I am a hypocrite, and the church is full of broken people, but you need to know that my faith is not in, a, in, in the church or in a hypocritical person. It is a man who did everything that he said he was going to do, and his name is Jesus. And in him, I put my faith. And you know that little 30-second conversation? That's literally all it took. Turn my world right side up. 
all of a sudden I began to see through a new lens that everything I was taught about God was wrong and everything that my grandfather was passing on to me was right and righteous and truth and wisdom. And we had hundreds of conversations like that in that truck, hundreds of them. And they were incredible. And they drew me out. All because my grandfather took a little bit of skill, trapped me in the proposition, and talked with me about God. It's as simple as that. That's it. And get this. I got to teach all three of my kids how to drive, how to park. And all of them learned how to parallel park in the very same way that my grandfather taught me. In fact, last Thanksgiving, last Thanksgiving, no joke, my daughter and my new son-in-law were coming over to Thanksgiving dinner. I saw them pull up in front of the house, and there was only one spot. Happens to be a spot you have to parallel park in, right? My daughter's in the passenger seat. My son-in-law's in the driver's seat. He tries three times to get it into that spot. To win, then, I witness from inside the house. No one knows. My son-in-law get out of the driver's seat. My daughter walk around the front of his truck, get in the driver's seat, and perfectly parallel park, which gave me the deepest joy ever. I mean, oh, why? Because discipleship is powerful. Man, it affects generation after generation after generation. In fact, you're sitting in this room today because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Jesus didn't just accidentally spend time with 12 men. He didn't look down from the cross and go, oops, I should have discipled some dudes. No, he took 12 guys under his wing because he knew that we needed to be shown the way. And he made a covenant with them that we're experiencing the results of today. And guess what? You have that responsibility too. It's not just my responsibility, it's your responsibility. And you have got to carry that on. And guess what? It begins first with your family, and then with your friends, and then with your neighbors, and then inside the church, and all. Fellas, if we started making covenants like th these two men did here, this, our world would change. We need to be less frustrated with all the things happening in the world, and we just need to be the men that God has called us to be. And the only way that that happens is in covenant with one another. Now, I know this. I can't make you do this, and it irritates me. <laughs> oh, it irritates me. I want to make every one of you guys group up with other men. I do, because I know that there's too many blessings from it. I want you to see the blessings in the relationship with my grandfather here. Really, my story is not a story of me. My story is a story of my grandfather in that truck right there. In Vallejo, California, just north of here, he poured into my life. You thought nothing good could come out of Vallejo? Well, there was something good that came out of Vallejo. It's my grandfather and his witness to me. That's what's good came out of Vallejo. But the same effect can be felt in your life, just like it has through my life. Because once God starts working through men together, incredible things happen. So I can't say this strong enough to you. As you leave this place today, if you're going to go it alone, you're going to go it the most foolish way ever. Because if you don't go home and find other men to group together with and make, not, not just be in a group together, make a covenant together. A covenant together. I got men in my life that I've made covenants with. I got men older than me, younger than me, that walk with me through challenges of life. They are my board of directors, and they don't all know each other either. I call them up. I spend time with them. I eat lunch with them. I converse with them. I open my life to them, and they help me along the way. Because guess what? That's how the body of Christ works. I'm going to continue talking for a little bit. Is that okay? I, I'm just kind of, I don't know where all this is going, but I will say this. The body of Christ is intended to work together. Did you know this? That in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that my gift is for you, but guess what? All your gifts are for me. Did you know that? 
My gift ain't for myself. You know why? Because if my gift was for myself, I would become conceited and puffed up. That's why there's many members in the body because we need each other. This means that when you're sitting in a group, you're going to discover that inside of that group of men that there's this catalytic experience there. There's a supernatural effect of men coming together that's incredible, that has a compounding effect that you don't experience outside of yourself. If you do it alone, you only get what you can produce. When you come together with other men in front of God's word, it has an expanding effect, produces fruit that you don't anticipate. Why? Because our gifts are for each other. I mean, I love groups, man. I love sitting in groups with men, love having conversations with them, but I also love that, that catalytic effect that happens. I mean, one of my very first groups, I remember uh, there, was a, there was all these incredible guys, man. Some were CEOs, some were CFOs, some were, some, some were small business guys. There, there was this plumber, this plumber in my group. And by the way, a plumber in the group is the greatest gift to a group ever, right? Because don't you, any plumbers in the room, by the way? We got to have at least one, two, three, four. Okay, there we go. I love you guys. Can I tell you why I love you guys? Because for me, a plumbing project is three trips to the home store, right? Amen. Right. One, to go get all the parts I think I need. The second trip, to go, all get, the, go get all the parts to fix the problem I, I faced in the, fir the first one. And the third, to go get all the, the rest of the parts, right? But these guys right here, they got all the parts in their truck all the time. And they know exactly what to do. It takes them 30 minutes, what takes me three days to do, right? And their gift is a gift to the body, just like my gift is a gift to them. But we only experience that inside of that community right there and inside of a covenant with one another. And when you start feeling and experience that, you'll never walk away from it ever again. You'll realize, why did I wait so long to have other brothers in my life? So that's why I've been praying all day for that name to land on your mind. I want it there. I want it to disturb you. In fact, I want it to disturb you until you act on it. And it's very, very simple how to act on it. You go and buy a man to a stake and you buy. I promise they'll show up. You buy a guy a cup of coffee, you buy him a drink, you get him a sandwich. I don't really care what it is, but you sit down with him and you have a conversation. And don't overcomplicate this. It's just you inviting yourself into the life of another guy and asking him questions about how he handles life. Find a guy around you who's been through some challenges in his marriage. He's got wisdom to give you. Because, by the way, guys who have been through challenges have a lot of wisdom because they've made a lot of mistakes. And they can help you to avoid those same things. Find a guy who's, who's dealing with issues with his kids and interview him and talk with him and ask him, how do you do it? How do you make it work? Find a guy who's further along the career path than you that is where you want to be and ask him questions and get a spiritual perspective on what that looks like and how you can have an impact. It's just having a conversation with one another and continuing, continuing it for days and days and days and weeks and weeks until it becomes natural enough that you've developed a covenant, a bond with each other. So I want to call you to this today, and as you leave this place, I don't want you to do nothing with this. I want you to labor over it because the benefits are just too good. So fellas, I love you. Thanks for being here this weekend. I pray that maybe God's spirit has stirred you in some way and that you will do something to act on that thing as soon as possible. Because when you act on it, it fuses something together in your soul. Great God and Father of all mankind, the Father of all men, the Father of the man, 
God, as we leave this place, we, we pray that the challenges and the ways that you have spoken to us, the things that we have heard and the changes we have decided to make will become a covenant between us and you. God, that you have heard our hearts, you have heard our prayers, we have sang your praises, we have listened to your teaching, but now it's time to apply the principles. God, as we make this journey home, we pray that the covenants that we make with you will change our lives forever, that you will use these covenants to alter the course of our relationships, our marriage, how we parent, the people that we converse with, that we will come harder at sin as you have come against it for us. But God, we do not forget that your son was the one who made a covenant with us, who came down from heaven, gave us all the resources that we need for life and godliness and that he made a covenant with us as you ask us to make with you. And so we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Phyllis.